Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we are rewinding back to March 20th, 2012, so just a little bit ahead of where yesterday's rewind was. Episode 862, The Modern Homesteading Mindset. Something I didn't say yesterday about this, this time in history is where I was. If I didn't cut out the intro to these and, and just played them, just replayed them, you would have heard the following in the, uh, in the intro segment. Coming to you from high atop the hot spring, uh, hot springs village ridgeline from TSPN, the survival podcast network headquarters. Yeah, I was living in Arkansas at the time of this episode, the one we did yesterday. I had an office up there because we couldn't get internet that was reliable enough to make a home office work for us. And so we actually had a, an office location about 11 miles from our house. And uh, I had my little tiny commute every day back and forth from there. And that's actually at the same time that I did a little podcast that we did for a while and then just kind of did our thing with it and let it go called Five Minutes with Jack. And it ended up being uh, a little bit more than five minutes an episode, but it was on business. And I actually did a throwback at that time, and I did that show in my truck on my way to the office. Uh, like I did the original survival podcast. So it's a little aside I'd throw in there for you. So again, today's episode is called The Modern Homesteading Mindset. It was originally episode 862. And I chose this one because it kind of fits well with the one that we gave you yesterday. Multi-system dependence. So we talked about recognizing multi-system dependence yesterday and some ways to break free from it. Today we look at homesteading as a way to deal with multi-system dependence. Uh, but we, it's more of a nuts and bolts homesteading episode. We talk about things today like how the systems, how well are the systems actually working for the average person. And you'll hear me in this episode, I remember exactly how I said something to the effect is, well, you know, people say they prepare in case the system fails, And I said that the systems at the time, again, this is 2012, this is 10 years ago, were actively in failure. We have active failing systems. And some people would sit here today and say, well, Jack, it's 10 years later and it ain't all fell apart yet. People with a brain would say, geez, I've seen what's happened in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's failing. And what I've always tried to explain since I, I first started talking about this stuff, all the way back in 2008, 14 and a half years ago now, This is like a sci-fi movie when the ship gets caught at the edge of a black hole and, and, and ending up in the bottom of the hole is inevitable. But the actual time it takes to go into the hole and be stretched out like a little thin wire is very, very long. You think it's instantaneous, but it's not. And that ship is actually cruising around the outside of the hole, curving through space because the hole's so massive, the, the captain thinks the ship is still going straight. They don't even know they're caught yet, and it's inevitable that they're going down the hole. And it isn't until the bearings start to slightly change off from where it's going, well, what's going on? Why are we making a, a really long left-hand turn? Because you're going around the toilet bowl and you're about to get flushed. That's why. And when I would talk about it that way, people would think I would, I'm saying it's not going to be that bad. 
Just because something takes a long time to happen doesn't mean it's not going to be that bad. It, it, it is kind of, you know, even though I talked about last week how the boiling frog analogy is not real, the frog will try to get out of the water. It is kind of like the boiling frog, though, uh, at least the story, not the reality of it, in that if you're slowly, if your life is slowly getting worse, if the conditions around you are slowly getting worse, if the systems are slowly working less for you, you're less apt to notice it, and you're more apt to just say, well, it's probably always been this way. But I would say, like, right now... Do you think the overall water security in the United States is as good, the same, or better than it was 10 years ago? And since we've seen things that have gone on in places like Mississippi and Flint, Michigan, and, and other things that have happened to the water supply in the last 10 years, I think most people would say, well, you know, it's probably less. What about energy? Do you think that we are more stable from our energy needs and, and, and our, our systems of energy today or less so? Think about security. Security, right? The systems were an active failure then. They're an active failure now. And homesteading is a way to take more and more of the responsibility for your own needs onto yourself. That's the angle that we came at with, with this episode. So let's go ahead now and rewind on back a little over 10 years. March the 20th, 2012, originally episode 862 the Modern Homesteading Mindset. And remember, while these episodes are commercial-free while I'm gone this week, you can always support us by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. You can join the Member Support Brigade, or you can support our podcast, Even Rewinds, with value for value at fountain.fm. With that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to get into the main topic of today's show. And today's show, we again, we're going to talk about homesteading. Modern homesteading is a way of life. And I, I talk to a lot of people that say, you know, I live in an apartment or I have a really small garden home or a condo or something like that, and I can't do a lot of this stuff. And, and the reality is the if you don't have any land at all, it's a lot harder. It, it is a lot harder. Um, and those of you that are in that situation, I hope that when I do these, you're kind of thinking ahead to, to kind of the someday. Someday I'm going to be able to do some of these things. I'm going to have my own land, my own property. And I think that at least that mentality is key to your long-term wealth as, as a human being. I think that the reality is the only true form of wealth is profit, property. And, and I, I always get the occasional person has to say, well, the government can take it away with eminent domain, and there's taxes on it. And I understand that. I understand that. But those things are offset by what land really is. There is nothing in this world that anybody values that doesn't come in some way, shape, or form from land, other than, I guess, solar energy. And, and you know, you could, without the earth and without the atmosphere and without, uh, if we even want to do like a solar panel without the silicon, uh, without all of these materials that actually harvest it, it wouldn't matter. It would just be a big ball of gas radiating heat. There's billions and billions and trillions of them out there just like it. And as far as we know, our little third rock from the sun is the only place where it actually creates life. I don't think, I think with the odds and the numbers out there, there's probably life elsewhere, but it's the only place we know of. And as human beings on this planet, every form of wealth that you can derive or hold or use or spend that's true wealth comes from the earth. 
And even the gold bug that would say, well, it's gold. Gold is real money. Okay, fine. We don't completely agree on that. We don't completely disagree. But where does gold come from? Does it come from magical fairies in the sky? Or do we dig it out of the earth? You know, people say, well, it's food. Food is wealth. If you don't have food, you starve. Okay, great. Where does food come from? It comes from the earth. Okay, it comes from land. We have to have, even if we do aquaponics or hydroponics or something like that, we still have to have space to grow it. We still have a place to do it. Uh, even if we do it on, in, in a, a high-rise building, in a window, the building has to sit somewhere. Every single thing that humans value comes from the earth. Do you, do you see why many uh, aborigine-type uh, people, you know, native tribes from around the world all have such a reverence for the earth? Because they get that. It's a basic reality. And we get very detached from that as people. And I think that that is a problem for us. And now, if you live in a condo in New York City or something like that, and it makes the most financial sense for you right now, I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying that maybe long term that some piece of land somewhere should be part of your wealth. Even if you are going to be happy in the city, something that you would hand down, I think there's more value to a piece of land uh, than there is to a bunch of dollars. Uh, if we put a bunch of dollars aside and we wait for like 50 years, in general, they're worth less. That's how our money system's designed, as insane as that is. If we buy a piece of land, even if we detract the taxes that we pay on it, in general, 50 years from then, it is now worth more. And now there are places you can buy land where that doesn't work out because this city or the county or whatever is crazy with the way they tax them. But there are plenty of places left where that is true. I don't know any way to let money sit completely risk-free and have it really have more value 50 years from now. There's people that will say you can do it, but it's not 100% risk-free. Land, I believe, is about as risk-free as it gets, just from a wealth standpoint. But this is the survival podcast. So when I talk about gardening and, you know, small livestock and just anything that's homesteading related, I get a lot of people going, you know, well, if society degrades and, and what have you and the systems fail and, you know, then, then all of this stuff could be for naught because somebody could come take it away or there won't be any way to keep it going or what have you. And look, folks, I say this all the time, but I don't prepare for the apocalypse. I prepare for what history has shown me is likely to happen. And it is true that I could set up my homestead and we could have warfare and I could get bombed. Not personally, but just as collateral damage, right? Uh, we could have a tornado and it could wipe everything out. There are ways that you can lose things, but anything you have in life, I can say the same thing about. So I'm not going to let the potential for loss stop me from building something. If I did that, there'd be no survival podcast. There would have been none of the other companies that I built in the past. Uh, there'd be if, if anybody was willing to take that approach, there'd be no cars, there'd be no trucks, there'd be no bicycles, right? Because all of those can be damaged and destroyed. So to me, that mindset has to be that this is worth doing because we have the opportunity to do something for ourselves. And a lot of people look at survivalism and even homesteading as doing it in case the systems fail. See, my assertion to you right now is that the systems are currently failing, and many of the systems have already failed. People look at the systems and say, well, at least it keeps everybody alive and the population growing and, you know, what have you. And is that the role of the systems that we have in place? When I call the systems basically society and government. And when I look at that, I believe that the role of society and government should be to protect the rights of the individual while allowing all individuals to pursue happiness. So in other words, I can do anything that I want as long as I don't 
uh, you know, infringe on your right to pursue happiness. And I know that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness seem to be very American ideals. That that's part of our foundational document. And the reality is that it was never intended to be an American ideal when it was penned. It was intended to be a universal ideal. It was designed to appeal to people in 13 colonies that saw themselves all as independent from each other. Uh, the person from Massachusetts had a decidedly different opinion of what his sovereignty was than uh, the person from Georgia. They were more like little nation states, each of them a colony of, of a master uh, overlord in, in the form of Great Britain. But as they looked at independence, they didn't look at independence to become the United States of America as we see it today, but a group of states with a confederation between each other. And so to get people on board, the concept used to develop that and go forward with it, to make people risk their life and their sacred fortunes and their sacred honor, sacred fortunes, their life, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, had to be universal. It couldn't be a Massachusetts ideal. It couldn't be a Virginian ideal. It couldn't really be an American ideal because America was not yet founded in the way that we think of it today. It had to be universal. And you might be thinking, well, this doesn't sound like homesteading. It sounds more like a civics lesson or a history lesson and maybe even one you don't agree with. But actually, it's a huge component of what homesteading is all about because homesteading is about creating individual liberty. And it's why I talk about it so much. And if we look at that historical guideline, that the role of the systems should be to provide for individual rights and allow people to pursue happiness. Now, the pursuit of happiness is often misused by people that want to play the victim or that want to claim that somebody else is getting in front of the line or something like that. The pursuit of happiness is not the guarantee of happiness. It's not a guarantee that your actions will result in your happiness. If you're a dumbass and you do something really stupid, like turn an oven on or turn a stove on and watch the burner get hot, you have a right, if you want to, to take your hand, once it's nice and glowing red, and stick it on there. And if you believe that's the pursuit of your happiness and you're only harming yourself, so be it. But I can tell you the end result is not going to be good. That's an extreme example. But until such time as you grab somebody else's hand, and stick it on there, or tell them, hey, it's your fault, I got burned, fix it for me at your expense, you should be able to do whatever you want. And if people were allowed to burn their hand, this is a metaphor, okay, guys, and have to suffer the consequences of it, there'd be a lot less hand burning going on out there. Homesteading, to me, is an attempt to get back to that. Because if you ask me, are the systems functional today, I would tell you they are drastically dysfunctional. In other words, how well is the system working Or the systems, how well are they working for the average person? How many people out there have ideas and things that they would like to do where they're encumbered by their neighbors, a neighborhood association, an HOA, a local government, a city government, a county government? I just watched a, a show on um, Home and Garden TV or whatever it is where they have that House Hunter show. They got a spinoff of it called do, uh, do I Stay or Do I Go or something like that. Love it or list it. And the whole premise is that a real estate agent listens to the family and listens to everything that they want and everything they don't like about their house. And he goes out and tries to find them something better based on what they can sell the house for uh, and how much money they have and what their budget is. And then this lady uh, named Hillary, she comes in and she listens to everything they don't like about their current house. 
and she takes the budget that they have for remodeling, she puts it into the house, does the best she can to make them love it. And at the end, the family looks at the house, and they say, okay, this is how much we put in, this is now how much you can sell it for, and they try to do it smart. It seems like they do, and they can get more than they put in back out of it, so they leave that option open. And then the family makes a decision, do we stay or do we go? And you might wonder how this fits in. Well, last night we were watching it. Actually, my wife was watching it, and I was working and listening to it in the background because it's not that interesting of a show to me personally. Um, but one thing that caught my ear was they were going to do this addition, and the city came in and said, you can't put that addition on. And they said, well, why, why not? Uh, it's up to code. Everything's, you know, the, we're going to electrical. It doesn't, you know, go into any easement or anything like that. It's, it's, and they said... There's an ordinance that you cannot have X amount of floor space versus X amount of lot space. So this family was told that even though they didn't go into any kind of easement or break any laws, you can't make your house bigger floor space-wise, right? And this was like an addition on the second floor where the foot of the house was already there. So basically some houses, you know, that like there's straight walls up and some like have an area where there's like an area, a second floor, but it doesn't encompass the entire uh, footage of the house. Well, that's what they were going to do is take that space where it was only one story and expand the second story over it. They weren't allowed to do it because they would have too much floor space versus lot, lot space. Now, that's a clear... A, 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 you know, a clear obstruction in that family pursuing happiness, in my view. And they worked within the system and did what they could. But th their expansion of their second story would not have done anything to harm their neighbors. It in no way prevented any of their other neighbors from the pursuit of their own happiness. It was, in, it was completely reasonable. They were using, see, and that to me is a failure of the system. Because my individual rights, Uh, were infringed simply because somebody else decided that that's not the way things should be done, even though there's no good or logical reason, and even though my actions would not have been impinged anybody else's right. So there's a failure of the system. Now, the systems are failing in many other ways. Uh, one, of the, one of the systems out there is the food system, and the food system should be set up to provide good quality food to the people of our nation. I, I don't think anybody, and anybody that objects to that, So good quality food is widely available. And a lot of people would look at it and say, well, it is, Jack. You can go to the grocery store and buy whatever you want. Uh, sometimes pricing's an issue, but that's, this is a society of supply and demand. And yeah, but it's, it's not. The system has taken something we call corn and turned it into the all-inclusive ingredient and corn sugar isn't everything. That corn is, is pesticide and herbicide laden. It's genetically modified and we pay for it at least three times. We pay for it when we buy the product that it's in. That's the one everybody sees. We pay for it with the subsidy that makes it appear cheap. And we pay for it a third time in our healthcare system. So that's, that's a failure of the system. We, if you look at the food that our children eat in school lunches, it's a failure of the system. If you look at the food the average American buys from the grocery store, even when they think they're trying to be healthy, we see a failure of the system. And I could keep going. I could keep going. I could go on with the energy system. How many people out there would be generating energy in far more environmentally friendly ways if the system wasn't in the way? There are plenty of ways we could be generating electricity without regulation hampering individuals from doing it themselves. And we could just keep going and keep going and keep going. 
So when I look at the systems, I don't see the success that I think many people would like to believe is, is the case. I see dramatic failure on many levels. Not all levels, because society's still here. We have reasonable law enforcement in most instances. There are definitely abuses, but basically if somebody breaks in your house and steals stuff, if they catch them, they'll send them to jail, uh, and you'll have some level of recourse and justice. So it's not like the system doesn't function at all. If you have a job, you go to work, you get paid. You pay taxes higher than I think you should, but you get money. You can go home. You can go buy food if you strive to do it right. You can even find healthy food and good quality food, at least food that meets your individual standards. So the systems function, but they also have huge components of them that are failing and, and actively have already failed. When a person is told how many windows they can have in their house and how big those windows must be or how big they can be, I have a problem with that. So in all of these instances, and as we move out in the homesteading tiers, which I have broken down to urban, suburban, rural, and off-grid, the further out we go, the more we get a correction to the system. But even on off-grid homesteading, there's still this systemic interference on many things. Before I move into that, though, I want to talk about some other things from the homesteading concepts. To me, homesteading is a mindset versus uh, tasks and stuff. Right. I don't, I don't really see homesteading is, you know, you either are or aren't based on how big your garden is or whether or not you have livestock or what kind of house you have. To me, homesteading is really about the way we think, act, and be about our living conditions. Uh, just as modern survivalism is more about mindset, skill set, and knowledge. Uh, than stuff stored in a basement or in a bunker or in an off-site bug-out location. All those things have their place and their purpose, but the mindset's key. And with homesteading, I see that is the same thing. And to understand what that mindset needs to be, we need to look at the goals of the original homesteaders. The original homesteaders, uh, in this country anyway, were people that came to this nation with the belief in the sovereign right of man to own his own property. That's really what it was about. And that was many things. That was real property like dirt, yes, but also to have stuff that you purchased or earned or created that no one could come in and just simply say, you won't be needing that anymore. And in the feudal system, that was very common. And understand, at the dawning of, of the American age, you know, I don't mean any disrespect to Native Americans when I say stuff like this, folks. Don't get politically correct with it. Let's just look at it as a historical time period. But when men started coming to what we now call the United States of America and started to settle here, most of the rest of the world still existed in a feudal system architecture, meaning that the common man had no right to property that you were a subject of a king or a czar. A subject, not a citizen, a subject. Let me ask you if you like the concept of being considered a subject. Imagine even if we elected the president, instead of the president being a servant of the citizens, if the citizens were subjects of the president. How would you feel about that happening to you today? I want you to just, I want you for a moment, even if you do other things while you listen to the show, this is actually important that you get this mindset in to understand 
The, we're actually headed back in that direction. And I want you to feel it for a second. I want you to say to yourself right now, I am a subject of the government of the United States. And I, I know it's not true. For God's sakes, it's not true. But I want you to say it and see how it makes you feel. It should make you feel almost dirty. It should make you feel owned and used. And then I want you to think to yourself, have I ever felt this way about my government before? Have I ever felt this way about the system before, the corporatism system? You know, I had Lear Keith on, and she referred several times to the concept of global capitalism being the problem. And I know a lot of people out there are probably like, oh, God, you know, it's socialist nonsense. And see, I don't think actually that she and, and we really disagree that much. It's a terminology we use. I'd say that the term would be more accurately global corporatism or global fascism. How do you feel as an American, whether you're a farmer or not, knowing that a company like Monsanto with a genetically modified seed that you do not want on your property, you've specifically said, I don't want that here, and that seed can end up cross-pollinating with your own plants you're trying to keep pure, and Monsanto can come onto your property without a search warrant, test your, your, your plants genetically, and then fine you and successfully sue you, And a court of law can say it doesn't matter how the patented technology got on your property. You're responsible for a licensing fee back then. Doesn't that make you feel like that farmer's a subject? And if it can happen to them, could it happen to you? And you almost look at that and go, well, and how is the homesteading going to fix this? Well, it's not going to fix it overnight. And there's still tr struggles along the way. And back to the original homesteaders when they came here. Okay, first you had to get on a ship. And you very well might die before you got here. And then when you got here, it wasn't like there was a ticker tape parade. Everybody was like, hey, welcome, how are you doing? Let's show you around the place. In many instances, you'd get into this little small settlement, city, colony, you know, the capital of a colony, a port. And just a few miles outside of there, there was nothing but wilderness. And if you wanted anything, generally you spent everything you could scrape up just to get here. And then you would work sometimes as an indentured servant, sometimes as a, a skilled tradesman. You would do something to earn more money. And if you were an indentured servant, to hopefully eventually earn your freedom or die an indentured, indentured servant who had earned the freedom for your children who had apprenticed somewhere. And eventually you would scrape up enough money and you would go out into this vast wilderness and you would literally carve out a piece for yourself. And it was worth all of that and so much more that I can't cover today. Because it was yours and you owned it. And when you did that, you knew that it could provide for you and your family and subsequent generations. The biggest expense the average person has today is their home, where the homesteader's greatest asset was their homestead. The homestead produced for versus consumed. And it's so important that we start thinking about that way because that needs to be the goal that we have no matter where it is that we choose to homestead. And we can do it to varying degrees. And the reality is we should actually be able to do it almost anywhere. It's only the systemic interference that prevents it. Let's start out with urban homesteading. And the Reyes family, I dare you. I'm just saying, those of you that don't know about that, don't worry about it. Those that do, you get the joke. I dare you. Urban homesteading. So when we look at urban homesteading, to me, it's high-density settlements. We, there's, there's kind of a line where is it really urban or is it suburban? 
And, and we often make that kind of gray line determination for ourselves. But to me, when I'm in an urban setting, I know it, I feel it, and I don't like it. It's not where I choose to live, but it's okay if you do. In an urban homestead, there'd be no reason that you shouldn't be able to, I don't know, do something like sawdust toilets and composting human manure if that's what you want to. I really don't want to. I know a lot of you guys said it works great, but, I mean, I think you might have some trouble with that. In an urban homestead situation, there should be no problem with having chickens as long as you have a little bit of a yard and you do things the right way. And in some places there's not, but in some places there are. Right? It all depends. And a lot of times the problem is that people start doing these things and it's not that the law changes, but as Joe Saladin put it, the bureaucrat changed. He talked about how on his farm they had certain practices that they had done for decades. And the guy that was the head of the Department of Agriculture or whatever for his area came by and looked at it and said, that's the most amazing thing. I have no problem with that. It's the best operation I have ever seen. And when that guy retired, the new guy that took over immediately came in and shut them down. The law didn't change. The code didn't change. The bureaucrat changed. And the further in you are, the more change of bureaucrats and the greater number of the bureaucrats exist. So urban homesteading, to me, we should be able to do most of the stuff. And, and some of the stuff we should be able to do better. Because here's the reality. If we move out, into a rural or off-grid scenario, and we have 40 acres, just about no matter where you're at, a single family, or even a large extended family, say you know you get your brother with you, and, you, and the prior generation, mom and dad from one side of the family are there, and you've got everybody working together, big family, you know, two, two nuclear families, so you've got two sets of kids out there working, still are going to have a hard time producing everything they need. Still are going to need some off-homestead income. But can we mitigate that if we have community? If we start saying, I'm going to specialize in peppers as one of my annuals, and your neighbor's going to specialize in corn and grow multiple sequences of corn. So he has a long extended harvest, and he's going to really focus on that, and you're going to do the same thing with peppers. And you all start bartering. And that's just one-dimensional, but it starts to make the point. If one guy's going to work and, 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 and farm hogs, and again, I'm out in an off-grid or rural situation here, and that guy is going to really focus on hogs and poultry and run them behind each other in a tractoring scenario, which works very well, if the guy down the road is growing grain that's healthy, good grain that can be sprouted and supplement his livestock, and they can barter, both of them can now do more with less cash. So how does that go back to urban homesteading? Well, what we need to make those scenarios work are people that are close enough together to form tight bonds, strong community, to barter with each other, to make these arrangements, to make these agreements, to pass a basket of apples over a fence to a neighbor who passes back a basket of figs. Now, I could play Jeopardy music here if I had the sophisticated equipment to do it with. I don't. Just imagine the Jeopardy music going on behind you. Where is there more opportunity to have large numbers of people you can commune with in an urban area or an off-grid area? Think about that. Because many of the reasoning that we don't want to be in highly populated areas revolves around what? The interference by the other. It's not that they're there. It's that they get in the way. Whether it's the typical stuff, like they get in the way because in the, when I want to go to the store 
or I want to go visit a friend across town, I got to go five miles. It takes me 25 freaking minutes because they're all in the middle of the road. They won't get out of my way. But that, those people eventually go, we could probably make the traffic system better or whatever, but I can deal with that. It's they get in the way of you doing what you want to do. There's a lady right now being sued by a condo board because out in the front of her condo, she planted flowers. Okay? That's where people start to go, I, I, I can't take it anymore and I want out. But the reality is the urban and suburban areas are actually ideal for homesteading. There, I, I know it sounds counterintuitive because people get in the way, but a properly designed suburban or urban community should be rocking as a homesteading community. Look what the urban farming guys have done in St. Louis. They went into one of the worst neighborhoods. And if you haven't seen these guys, get on their YouTube channel, get on their, their site. I give them, I think, like 10 bucks a month in donations or something to support their efforts. They're just awesome. You know, they're growing like, you know, 10,000 tilapia in a backyard a year or something like that. They've got community gardens everywhere. They've knocked the crime rate down to almost, they live in the middle of the true St. Louis ghetto. And they've dropped the crime rate. They moved about 19 families and they bought these old houses. They fixed them up. Sometimes the houses were so dilapidated and cheap. Guys went in and bought two houses next to each other and just demolished one and harvested materials from it to fix up the other one. And turned up into a bigger lot and put in urban farms and urban homesteads. And they're transforming the city. Now, let me ask you why it's possible. Jeopardy music's playing in your head again. Why is it possible for, why do they not run into the interference so far that other people do in those environments? Because they went to a place that was such an armpit, nobody cared. Nobody cared. The complaints they get from neighbors now is I can't cut through there anymore because you put food in my way. Right, So those people are a problem, but it's very minor. They're able to do most of this stuff. They don't have a lot of people from the city coming down and giving them a, a hassle because the city's finally collecting property taxes and the crime rates down. So the cops are like basically like going around this place now because all the crime is like in a belt outside of there because just the fact that people are coming outside has shoved the criminals out. They're going somewhere else. I hope they keep expanding that island until it encompasses half of the city. Of course, when they do, then our friendly code officials will come back. But don't ask for forgiveness, or ask, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, unless it's going to wind you up in a jail cell. That's, that's kind of my motto there. So I'm not going to say much on suburban because it's pretty much the same deal. In fact, in many instances, it may be harder to suburban homestead than a true urban homestead because suburbanites are generally the biggest pain in the ass on planet Earth. There is few people in the world that are a bigger pain in the ass than the Wisteria Lane suburbanite. I have lived in suburbs on and off my whole life. I have never lived in a suburb like that, and I wouldn't do it. The first thing I want to know when I'm looking at a house, is there an HOA here? Yeah, but no, next. Don't even want to hear it. Don't even care. So you, you, because here's what, here's what you need to understand as a homesteader when you look at an HOA. It's another tier of government. It's a private governmental system. That's what an HOA is. In other words, the nation already has a system of laws and codes that dictate what can happen in a subdivision. From down there, there is a list of laws, codes, and interferences and, and law enforcement at a state level. Coming down from there, there are county codes and regulations. And coming down there, there are city or town or township or parish or whatever you call it where you are, village regulations. 
So there's already four governing bodies on top of you when you live in the suburbs. And then when you add an HOA, you add a fifth, as though there's not enough interference and confusion already. So I want nothing to do with them. And the more artsy-fartsy upper end a suburban neighborhood is, the more interference your neighbor's going to have with what you do. That's where we had a situation in Oregon with Jan Klein, where all this lady wanted to do was sell the last of what she had with yard sales in her backyard, and a neighbor bitched. And make no mistake about it, as wrong as the city was to interfere, it was a neighbor that caused the problem. So the problem that we have with suburban and urban developments is the people themselves that want things to be a specific way. And that actually means that places that look least desirable can almost become like mini free state projects, like, like they're doing in New Hampshire with the free state. That's really, that's really what the urban farming guys have done. It's like a free city project, but it's not about government interaction, government freedom. It's about let's just go in where nobody gives a shit and make it the way we want it, and it'll be better than it was so the people that stay will like it, the people that move in will want it that way, And for a time, anyway, there'll be nobody to bitch. It's like going into a new, new world. See, that's why I'm saying so much of this stuff's about mindset more than what you do. Now, I want to do want to move a little bit into rural and off-grid homesteading. This is, I would classify myself as a rural homesteader. I don't live far from Hot Springs, but I live in the middle of nowhere, per se. You come, you know, basically directions to my house are, and I'm not going to give them out on the air, but you drive down a road until it turns dirt, and then you make a turn a certain way, and then you drive another mile and a half on that dirt, and then you go to a gate, and we're behind that. And I give a little bit more detailed directions to people when I actually tell them how to get there. But that's pretty much it. That's as out of the way as I can get and still be close to shopping and stuff like that for my wife. Right now, I've been doing a lot of work, and I need to get some photos up and some video for you guys of what I've been doing, but I've gone in, I've dug swales, I have uh, Caius oat grass growing like two feet tall in my front yard. Neighbors think it's awesome. Even if they didn't, what are they going to do? Who are they going to call? Who's going to care? There's no regulation against that where I'm at. And it's beautiful green. It's the only, and that's where I did my swales, and I put my mini apple orchard in and stuff like that. And it's actually going to look a lot nicer eventually. Right now, I'm growing the oat grass. I'm cutting it back. I'm using it as mulch. I'm growing it back again. I'm cutting it. I'm using it. I'm going in. I'm seeding clover and buckwheat behind it. And eventually, the whole thing will become more like a meadow without the big, tall grass. The big, tall grass is extracting the nutrients, putting the root base down, creating the carbon pathways, doing all that great stuff. And guess what would happen to me if I had done that in my front yard in Arlington? Guess what would happen if I would have done it in my backyard in Arlington, Texas? The neighbors that could see into my yard from their second story would have called, this guy's got grass two feet high. See, so even though it's a transformational step, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And that's, to me, what makes rural so awesome. Rural is awesome because I can do things and be left the hell alone. Because even if what you're doing isn't technically illegal, Code officials don't really care about whether or not you comply. They care about whether or not they're left alone. So eventually what they'll do is find something to bitch about so that you'll comply so the neighbor will stop calling their office and their supervisor will get off their ass. Case in point, I know a guy who had a problem with a neighbor and instead of calling up his neighbor or going down and knocking on the door and saying, hey, could you fix this, he called code enforcement in. Code enforcement came in and said, indeed, your neighbor's in violation of the code. I'll go down there and fix it. 
However, I've noticed you have this overhang off the side of your house. It extends one foot into the easement. That whole overhang and the patio you've built underneath it, you're in violation. That all has to go. And it cost him thousands of dollars to remove a structure that had been there for years because he bitched about his neighbor. Now, what does that tell you? That code official was annoyed that he had to come out there and do his job. And he went up and down the street, and he found violations everywhere he could. He probably got his quota knocked out for the month, and he went back to sit behind his desk and being left alone. So it's not just about compliance in these suburban environments and urban environments. It's about not creating a problem with your neighbors who want to call and complain before they come talk to you. And that's a real problem, and it's something that people need to get over in this country. We need to start solving our own problems. When we want to take it to the ultimate, we go to off-grid homesteading. And I'm thinking about coming up with a formula on this, because it's almost like the inverse relationship between disaster probability and impact scale that we talk about. We go to off-grid homesteading. We get the ultimate in freedom. There's still some interference. There's still some interference from government, but nobody can see you or very few people can see you, and most of the people that can see you want the same type of environment you do, so they don't care what you do as long as you don't bother them. So for the most part, you're left alone. People in true off-grid situations often do things that are technically illegal, like in some states harvesting rain. So I'm not talking about like, you know, butchering children for profit, for God's sakes, or growing, or growing uh, drugs or making meth, right, when I say something, but technically illegal, like harvesting rainwater from their roof, and people just like, yeah, he's an old guy up in the mountains, and they leave you alone. But what's the problem as we move out to off-grid? We reduce the number of people that we have available for our community. So the strongest potential for community interaction exists in a high-density settlement, but that also creates the greatest level of interference. And the most independence exists in the off-grid environment, which creates the most freedom, but the least ability to create community. And to me, community is critical to proper homesteading, because none of us are an island. And none of us are generally happy being an island. We want other people to interact with. And when we look at homesteading, there's really six survival needs that we need to think about how they relate to our homesteading. And those are pretty simple, right? They're the same ones we talked about all the time. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, and sanitation. Food is the one people focus on the most. Because when I get me a homestead, I'm going to get me some chickens, I'm going to get me a milk cow, I'm going to get me some pigs, I'm going to plant me a garden, I'm going to plant me some fruit tree, I'm going to plant me some nut trees. And that's great. And it's a big driver for me. I mean, I just planted over 30 trees and bushes on less than a half of an acre. It's probably a quarter acre I got out there in the front. It's going to be an awesome food forest. I put in these swales I was talking about, and then up on my higher landscape, I put in three rock walls on contour. They're only about a foot tall, like one layer of big heavy. There's rocks everywhere, and those rocks are supposed to pour rain today. will just be making that ground just saturate. Because as that water comes down that grade where it used to erode, it's just going to stop, slow down, and go in. And I'm, I'm real excited about it. But it's only one component. You've got to worry about water. Um, say what you want about municipal systems, but water to your faucet is one of the most reliable things you can get. And while you might want to get a Berkey system because of chlorine and fluoride in there, chlorine, I understand why it's there. It's a necessary evil in my view and easy to get rid of. Fluoride, I don't believe, belongs there, but the water will come 
and you can filter it out. You can use it for watering plants. And when we go out into a rural situation like I'm in, I don't get water from the city or the county. There ain't no water coming ever where I'm at. It will never happen. They will not do it. It is not worth it to them to bring it up there. So that means I'm on a well. Well, that's great. I have free water for the cost of the energy to pump it, which is very low compared to what a citizen in town pays for their own water. There's an initial expense, but if something happens to the water supply, I, it's not that I don't care. I don't want to put it that way. But in, in essence, day to day, I don't really care. I feel bad for the people that have to deal with it, but it doesn't affect me directly. I turn my faucet on, the water comes out. Until something goes wrong with the well, then I got to take care of it. If I go off grid and I start doing rain collection in the cisterns, if I get a bad enough drought and there's no more water, I got to go find water. I got to go truck it in. And it happens to people. I'll, I'll tell you, I put, um, when I was doing underground construction work with mostly telecommunications like uh, fiber optics and phone cable, stuff like that's what we did. But we did a, uh, some boring uh, out in a place called Graham, Texas. And there were people that literally like fired up a truck with a trailer every week and went out and got 200, 500 gallons of water and paid for it and hauled it back to their house. And that's why one of the reasons we were putting in uh, these water pipes in these rural areas. And that was just the way that it was. There were people out there, and understand, this is not like last year or something. This is years before the big Texas drought, um, that were literally selling and killing off their cattle because they just couldn't afford to water them anymore. So water is something we need to put a premium on. Now, to me, again, <laughs> if we're not interfered with, food and water are ideal uh, as far as creating redundancy in a suburban or urban environment. With the water, if we do rain catch in an urban environment, we reduce the erosion, we reduce surface runoff, and that reduces the amount of pollutant that's carried into the groundwater and the streams and stuff around us, and it makes us more efficient in our water use, and we draw less from the municipal tap system until we're told we can't do it. And in a lot of places we can, but in a lot of places we can't. Um, when we look at uh, food, though, when I look at the work that people like Jeff Lawton are doing in Australia with urban permaculture, and guys, if you haven't gotten this DVD yet, it's one I recommend for your library. It's called Urban Permaculture. It's available on the uh, Permaculture Institute of Australia's website. The shipping's like 12 bucks because they're shipping it from Australia. But to me, it was one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen, how much people can produce in these little bitty lots. I mean, I'm not just talking typical American suburban lots. I'm talking tiny lots. And if we start to do more of that, especially with perennial plantings, the opportunity for exchange and barter and economy in the suburban and urban environments are great until, again, we're interfered with. You can't sell it. it just, it, to me, it just keeps going. And, it, and to me, it's going to take a combination of people doing all of these in force to shift the system. Here's a perfect example. My wife is very concerned about our fa my father-in-law, her dad right now, because he's getting older, he's having some dementia issues, he doesn't like to leave the house, he's gotten lost a couple times when he's lost the house, and she wanted to get people coming by and maybe cooking for him a couple times a week. So she talked to Meals on Wheels for seniors, and apparently you have to be a complete shut-in before they will help you, and you can't even, like, buy it. So we ended up with a solution that one of, our, one of her sisters, who's financially not doing very well, uh, but has lots of time because she's on disability and not working. We would provide the money. She would cook the food and take it to him a couple days a week. And we just all thought that was a great idea. And it gives 
her something to do and feel needed. We take care of the financial aspect of it. He gets to see one of his daughters more frequently. He gets good cooked meals, and she'll bring him the stuff, and it'll be you know several meals each time in Tupperware, individual serving, so he can just microwave it and heat it up, and he gets his independence. And he gets to keep it for longer than he otherwise would be able to. And my wife immediately, I guess the entrepreneurial thing is like going into She goes, you know, you could set up a business like this. This, this is a huge market for this. People would love, you know, if, as long as you have the people vetted uh, or bonded or something, background checks so you know that they're safe, uh, and just simple home-cooked meals and kitchens, you could almost set it up and give the person, here's the blueprint, and we'll get the clients for you. You go buy your own food. You cook it in your own house. You take it to your clients each week. And as long as you keep your book of business running, we'll just, you know, keep adding clients until we reach a certain level, and that's what one person does. And then they, they can, you know, du- you know, you, you can direct bill and you pay them a piece uh, meal part per each. She goes, I don't want to do that, but it'd be a great business for somebody to do. I said, yeah, until the Department of Health comes in and says that the quality of the food is not sufficient to be taken to someone and fed. As long as it's family doing it or charity, it's fine. You set up a business like that, they're going to want all the food cooked in an FDA-approved kitchen with restaurant quality, this and that. Because we have to protect safety. And it's just asinine to believe that a home-cooked meal is not safe. It really is. And to believe that that can't be policed by the family paying for the service, the company overseeing the people, and I guarantee you they would get in the way. It's just another example. And we need to really begin homesteading in earnest in all of these environments, in my view, to turn the tide of liberty back. Because it's easy To come down on one lady planting flowers, what if everybody in the condo except the one lady planted the flowers? Or just one person planted flowers? It's, 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 it's much more difficult now, isn't it? What about the people that were threatened with being put in jail because their front yard garden had vegetables in it? What if instead of just half or, or three quarters of the people in the neighborhood going, that's terrible, they shouldn't do that to them. What if they all said, you know what? Guess what? Everybody get in the get in the cars. Let's go on. We'll put our money together. We're going down to Home Depot or Lowe's or better yet, the local department store. We're all putting raised beds in. We're all buying plants. By the time these guys come back, 70% of the houses in this neighborhood are going to have front yard gardens too. Good luck, code officials. Good luck. Good luck with that. Good luck having your elected officials back you when they go, ugh, 70%. Gee, that's enough to get my ass thrown out of office. And it's not that simple, but it's a step in the right direction, isn't it? And if we are going to have our liberty restored, it's not going to come by who we vote for. We are going to have to take it. We are going to have to seize it. And to me, homesteading is a way that we do that. Uh, shelter is a need that we have there. To me, that's pretty self-explanatory. The home itself But the big thing is we don't overbuy so that we end up paying for that shelter for the rest of our lives. We want to at some point actually own the shelter instead of having the shelter own us. Energy, we need to look at efficiency, alternative energy, any way that we can improve that. I'm going to shorten this, the, these things up today because there's some real important things to say in closing. Security. Security is another issue. I think a lot of people go off grid or royal and they feel really secure because they got their gun and they can see and they got their, 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 and they say, this is mine. Right, but if, if somebody really wants to come there and take that from you, you got you, your dog, and your wife, maybe your kids. But if you have a suburban or urban environment with a good quality neighborhood watch, with systems and procedures in place, you actually have a lot more security 
than the person that's out there on their own. Fernando's talked about that a lot. In many instances, in Argentina, you're much safer in some of the better, well-policed and community-policed uh, areas, even after the collapse down there, than you are out on a farm. Because out on a farm, somebody just come out there and shoot you and take what you have. By the time the police get there to clean up the mess, they're long gone. So there is an inverse relationship. There's sanitation. Cities have well-developed sewer systems. Now, is there a sanitation crisis because of that? Yes, but at least in the immediate area. I don't have to put a septic tank in or use a composting toilet or anything like that. So actually, the, the urban and suburban environments and the, uh, let's call them the, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, subdivision model. So it could even be a rural subdivision model. Can, so what I'm talking about is houses that are laid out sort of kind of an even pattern space instead of just like, you know, Tom's up on the hill and he's got 50 acres and Bob over there's got 100 and I'm down here with five and Bill's down there with uh, 20 and then nobody really knows who owns that piece of land. That's kind of cool. I like that environment. I personally do. Where a, a subdivision environment would be more like, you know, everybody has a minimum two-acre lot. Some people maybe have five to ten And they're kind of laid out along streets and everybody knows each other. There's a community there. Those environments actually have a lot going for them if we can just get the interference out of the way. Because they really help build up the community. And I think that when people talk about homesteading, community is the one thing that's most overlooked. And I want to talk a little bit about the concept of a true homesteader's community. Something for homesteaders. And I don't know if anything will come of it, but I'm actually talking to somebody kind of about this right now. And I don't know, again, I don't know if anything will come of it. The way things are right now, I don't think the numbers work quite yet. But there's all these talks of like eco-villages, right? Eco-villages to me are generally a bunch of hippies that have a political bent to what they're doing. I don't care if you're a homesteader. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care if you vote for a dog as Democrat, because that's what your daddy did. As long as you don't get in my way. As long as you let me live my life, and I'll let you live your life, and we can shake hands and maybe have a beer together, even if we don't agree with the daily news and the political take on it. I just want you to leave me alone, and I want you to let me alone. I want the guy down the street, if he wants to, to tie into the grid and put his thermostat on 66 degrees in the summer, if that's what makes him happy. But I also want the guy down the other end of the road that wants to build an earth ship and passively heat and cool his home to have the freedom to do that. And I don't want either one of them bitching about the way the other person's living. To me, that's a homesteader's community. If, if I had a homestead community that was planned, I would want kind of an agreement coming in, a constitution, almost a little mini libertopia. You know, you understand that some people are going to have chickens and chickens make noise and crap. If you don't like that, don't move here. There's no obligation for you to keep chickens. You don't have to. God down the road has a cow. It goes moo. It takes a dump. If you don't like that, don't move here. I, and to me, there's a tremendous opportunity to do something like that someday. And I don't know if it's better to move into a place where you get a big hunk of land and you, you parcel it out. And I am not big on the whole compound stuff. I think that's the dumbest, worst idea known to man. Remember, what did I say drove the original homesteaders? The concept that you could own property and have the right to ownership respected. 
So if you go get 100 acres and put 50 homesteaders on it and say we all own all the land together, that is just a recipe for just a catastrophe. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a survival compound because it's a little bit too much density for the typical mindset of survival. But for homesteaders, that density is not bad as long as we all own our two acres. And, and to me, something like that, about 100 acres to work with, well, maybe I'd break it up into, I don't know, 40 two-acre parcels. And you got to have some space allocated to put roads in, even if they're just dirt roads. But maybe you put aside 10 acres as like a common natural area. Where people can have like, you know, like Bohios, which is like an outside hut, where people can get together and do community events and things like that and trainings and share things and, and anything from political discussions from the people that want to participate in that to worship services. To me, that makes sense, but your property is your property. And as long as you don't infringe upon the right of your neighbor to pursue happiness, go nuts with it. And there would still be interference by local authority and, and state authority and things like that. But if you did it just far enough outside of these urban-suburban shitholes, you'd get away from a lot of that. And if the whole concept was when you come here, you come into a not a HOA, because I hate that, right? HOAs tell you what you cannot do on your land because your neighbor doesn't like it. Where I see a covenant is saying what you cannot do to interfere with your neighbor. You know, the, it flat out, in this neighborhood, chickens are allowed. You don't like chickens, you don't have to have them. You see what I'm saying? So, much as, much as Barack Obama, Barack Obama described the Constitution as a document of ne negative liberties, where it says not what will be provided to you, but what you, you shall not be interfered with, that's what I would see as a great community. I would love to be part of something like that someday. And I don't know what the density is, you know. Um, if it was near a national forest or something where there's lots of hunting land and all things like that, the, my desire for 40 acres isn't really that big anymore, you know. Um, two acres of good quality land, the right place, right soil, right climate, right terrain, right slope. Uh, you can do a lot with it. And if you're surrounded by 40 or 50 other people with common mindset, and then as a survivalist, as a survivalist, Where would you rather be, on your own, on a mountaintop, in the middle of nowhere, if society breaks down, or surrounded by 30 or 40 other families that have pledged to act as a community and take care of each other? Now, how each person chooses to do that is an individual choice. But that's just part of the mindset, going here to be part of something. It might be a pipe dream. I don't know. But it's something that I'm at least thinking about for the future. And I don't know if it'll ever happen. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it won't. I don't know. But I'd love to see somebody do it, even if it had nothing to do with me. And I can think of some places where it's sort of been done. But that would be, and then so people say, well, could I do this? Could I do that? I don't care. I don't care what you do. So you do it on your property, or if you have community property, on that community property, there's certain rules, and you follow those. And as long as you're not doing something like, You know, if you're doing something stupid, like, can I shoot my gun? Well, not at your neighbor's house. Not in an area that's not safe. Maybe part of the community area is a rifle range and a skeet range. And that's where we do that stuff, you know. And if your house happens to back up to a mountain when it's a big pile of dirt and you want to shoot back there, I don't care. But, I mean, maybe your neighbor. you got to sort that out. You figure stuff like that out amongst yourselves. 
The problem I see with it, as soon as you start to structure it that way, becomes quote-unquote a subdivision. It's, it's subject to subject, subdivision regulations. But if you don't do any of the building, if you just bought a piece of land and tell people, you buy the land, you do what you want with it, you might circumvent a lot of that. And if you did it somewhere close to a major market, but far enough to get away from all the crap, it just might work. And I would tell anybody out there that the big thing to take away from this isn't my pipe dream of somebody doing something like that. The big thing to take away from this is you can do it wherever you are. You don't need to ask permission for it. You just need to figure out how to do it smart. You need to figure out how to build community. You need to figure out how to get other people on board with you. And homesteading is more about thinking about creating your own independence from the system. It's more about thinking how to make wherever you live provide food, water, shelter, energy, security, sanitation for you and not a la carte so I have to pay for it every month. It at least creates some level of percentage of self-sufficiency in each of those realms. And however you do that is up to you. And the only reason that I see to move away from the higher density settlements is for the freedom to act the way we should all be able to act in the first place, which is common sense for building our own individual living. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better Shut